The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Megan Lott. She is the Deputy Director for Healthy Eating Research, which is a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation based at Duke University. The program supports research on policy, systems, and environmental strategies that have strong potential to promote healthy eating among children. Megan is a registered dietitian. She holds a BS in nutritional sciences and dietetics from the University of Cincinnati and a master's in public health from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She has extensive experience working in nutrition policy and research, especially in the areas of early childhood and school food environment. Welcome, Megan. It's great to have you with me. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, there are so many changes going on on the policy front, and there are so many populations in need. And I wanted to talk to you about some of the new reports that have come out from Healthy Eating Research. But we should probably start with just a little background about how did you as a registered dietitian choose this path to go down with policy and research? Yeah, you know, it feels like so long ago, but when I was doing my dietetic internship, I had a very strong appreciation for the one-on-one nutrition counseling that was happening. However, I often found myself in situations where I would be giving someone nutrition education after a heart attack or just being diagnosed with diabetes and telling them what they should eat. And often people would come back with saying, you know, that's all well and good. I I know I should be eating more fruits and vegetables and, and less of the bad stuff, but the reality is I can't afford those foods that you're telling me I should eat. And it really started me down this path of looking into that more. First, through my internship, my project that I created for myself was coming up with a list of food banks and pantries near the hospital I was serving in to be able to give clients something when they said, I can't afford these foods, or I have a very limited income and I can barely afford groceries, period, to give them somewhere to go. But then I really started working to figure out there's got to be a better answer here. How do we start digging into changing policies and systems to make the healthier choice accessible for everyone, regardless of where they live or how much they make. Exactly. I know how you feel. I had the same experience. I remember my first job was a dietitian at the Veterans Hospital, and I remember sitting down with a veteran and going through a a lengthy series of explanations about their special diabetes diet. And he looked up at me and he said, lady, I can only afford to eat potatoes and beans. And that was a real revelation to me as well. And so I share your concern about the policies that leave American citizens, the wealthiest nation in the world, leave our citizens hungry or malnourished at the very least. So let's talk about a new report that came out from Healthy Eating Research. And this was basically guidelines to increase access to healthy food and beverages at food banks. 
Tell me a little bit about the Food Bank Network from your research. How many are out there? How many people are using these services? Is that number growing? Yeah, you know, actually one of my earliest jobs was working at a food bank. I ran a program for senior citizens where I was preparing monthly supplemental bags of food. And so I I have a lot of experience working in the food bank system and was really aware of the realities that food banks are often operating on donations and limited inventory. So things have, have significantly improved over the years, but I'm really hoping the guidelines that healthy eating research worked on is really going to help that. But for food banks, there's a lot of food banks and food pantries around the country. Feeding America is probably the largest nationwide network. They have more than 200 member food banks and pantries operating at different levels. And they serve a lot more people than many realize. According to the latest data, approximately one in nine households in the United States experience food insecurity, which means they lack access to or consistent access to enough nutritious foods they need to live a healthy and active life. So even after participating in other programs like SNAP or food stamps, as many know it, families still find that they have shortfalls in their food budgets, and those families are often then relying on food banks and food pantries to help meet those needs. Mm -hmm. I remember volunteering at one of my local food banks with my daughter's Girl Scout troop. This was many years ago, and I was struck by the poor quality of food that was available. You know, I think we were rebagging sugary cereals in individual little plastic bags because the boxes had been damaged and I guess donated. And I guess for the food industry, donating these products to the food banks gives them a tax write-off. And I think because food banks often feel like they have to take food from these industries, that it's difficult for many of them to draw the line and say, you know what, we're not going to accept this because maybe there are some penalties that if they reject one kind of food, they might not get another. Are these things that I've heard true? Have you heard the same stories? Yeah, I think that was historically one of the concerns is that if food banks said no to some of these donations, they would they would have donors walk away and say, well, if you're not willing to take this stuff, then we're not giving you anything. Thankfully, I feel like this is a process many food banks and have started on many, many years ago. So food banks and pantries across the country have really been working to increase access to nutrition, foods, and beverages for their communities and finding ways to promote health and wellness through different initiatives, whether it be nutrition education or in research, behavioral economics or nudges to point people to choose healthier options by really changing the way food pantries are set up to be more like a grocery store where it's a client choice pantry. So rather than giving them a bag of food, clients can come through and choose food from the shelves to put in their shopping cart or through other partnership opportunities. And, And some of food banks have been using nutrition guidelines to help make decisions about what foods and drinks can be categorized as nutritious. So maybe they're not turning foods away from donors, but of the inventory they have, they're kind of ranking them as this is a better for you choice versus choose this choice less frequently. So I think food banks have been moving in this direction. I think as evidence and systems have evolved and really we know that these nutrition guidelines can really be effective in helping individuals make healthier choices and the importance of dietary choices 
in chronic disease development and just general health and wellness, more and more people are recognizing the importance here and really moving down this path of working toward this common set of nutrition criteria as Mm -hmm. we've developed. Yeah. One comment that I want to make is that I feel like as an outsider looking into the system, that we have institutionalized hunger. And I should say that we use the word food insecurity, but that was really a term that sort of replaced hunger. I guess it was more politically Mm -hmm. correct. But I feel like so many of the programs that we have in place are Band-Aids because we're covering up for policies that maybe don't provide living wages for people. I think about the dignity aspect of relying on food pantries to feed my family as opposed to going to the supermarket and choosing food like the rest of the people. Tell me about your experiences with that. Yeah, I I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I mean, poverty is really at the root of many of the issues we're talking about. And poverty has long been a contributor to death and disease. And recently, I think we're seeing that increased focus on the link between income and health. And that's really important. As we were developing the guidelines, we convened an expert panel of people from around the country working on issues who had experience and expertise in both developing dietary guidelines and nutrition science, as well as people who are executive directors of food banks. We had someone from Feeding America staff on our panel. We we really tried to make it very representative. And I can tell you that a lot of these issues were at the forefront of all of our deliberations as we were developing these recommendations, everything from how are we really creating guidelines to help individuals and families who rely on food banks but in a way that also maintains that dignity and makes them feel like they have choice, that we're not dictating what people should eat, but really giving them the tools that they need to help them choose foods that will fit within their diet and and to follow dietary recommendations. And how are we working with the food banks to put these nutrition guidelines out there that are based in nutrition science, but also complementary working on an implementation toolkit and framework that gives food banks more ideas of how to implement these into their systems and how to think about some of these issues that really gets back to that connection between income inequality and and health and the link there with poverty. And, And to the extent we can start addressing some of those upstream causes, we want to be thinking about that as we're working with these guidelines. So, I think it's a really complicated issue, but you're absolutely right. We can't just keep coming up with more and more Band-Aids. Exactly. And just to give our listeners a framework, there are 200 member food banks in Feeding America, and they serve over 40 million people in the United States each year. So 40 million Americans are facing hunger or food insecurity, not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. And even if they have a meal, how nutritious is it? How much does it meet the dietary guidelines in preventing chronic disease? So sometimes just having this idea of how many people we're talking about helps bring home the importance of changing these policies. We should talk a little bit too, Megan, I think about how the food bank and food pantry systems are set up. So you've got the food banks that collect the donated food, and then they distribute it to food pantries, is my understanding. Is that correct? 
Yes, in most cases, that's how it works, where the food bank is kind of the central hub, and they'll have many members of the food bank, and that could be a food pantry that, you know, operating out of a church or a community center that is then distributing food to clients, or it could be that they're maybe providing food to community feeding sites like a Meals on Wheels, but where seniors actually come and have their meals together, or summer food service programs that are serving young children that are on summer vacation, for example. And so food banks are often getting food donations from individuals, but they're also getting food donations, as we talked about earlier, from corporate donors. A lot of times it's large grocery stores or food manufacturers that are located within a a radius of, you know, mileage within the food banks. But then they also get some limited federal money and sometimes state money where they can use those purchasing dollars to fill gaps in their inventory. And that's where we really hope these guidelines will come in too, that when food banks are deciding how to use their limited dollars to purchase foods to fill the gap, that they're choosing more of the healthier items or the choose often foods based on our rankings and less of the choose rarely or the less healthy foods like the overly processed snack foods. Sometimes food pantries, in addition to getting foods from their member food bank or their local food bank, may also get donations from local retailers. For example, a food pantry might be next door to a bakery that gives their day-old bread to the pantry to give out to clients. And the food bank sometimes helps facilitate those connections to make sure things like fresh produce and fresh bakery items, other more perishable food items get used quickly and distributed quickly. Other times, those are relationships completely independent of the food bank that the pantry develops with their local businesses. Mm -hmm. I need to take one break because we're halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Megan Lott. She is also a fellow registered dietitian. Her work really focuses on policy, and she is the Deputy Director for Healthy Eating Research, which is a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's based at Duke University. And we are focused right now on a new set of guidelines that Healthy Eating Research has published that looks at how we can better designate healthful food choices through the food bank and food pantry network. So we probably should dive in a little bit to the report. You recommend dividing food products into 11 distinct food and beverage categories. And you've touched on, you've got a three-tiered system where you've got choose often foods, choose sometimes foods, and choose rarely foods. And these are going to be designated with a green, yellow, and red stoplight kind of image. This is a very common way to help people eat better. They see where these choices land. Are you finding that once you've got this program laid out, you've got this three-tiered system, are you finding that food bank directors or food pantry directors are saying, whoa, we've got a lot of these red foods and we need a lot more of the green? You know, the guidelines just came out in early March. And so I think we're still a little early in that stage for food banks haven't necessarily taken their inventory in comparison to the recommendations. But I would say that as we were developing these and we had several members of our expert panel who are currently working in in a food bank or the executive director of a food bank who did say we have a lot in the choose sometimes category, so the yellow category. 
but we think it's really important to make sure that the guidelines reflect nutrition science and that we're really focusing on doing what we can to get more of the chews often in. And I think it's important to note that the red chews rarely category, food banks are still going to have those items. They're not necessarily going to reject them. What we're really hoping to do, though, is give them a framework to know that they don't need to spend their limited dollars on buying more of them, and also to give food pantry clients a framework that these are items they should not be consuming every single day at every single meal. Rather, they should be treating them more as an occasional treat where they're eating them maybe once a week. So I think we are still early in the process to know exactly. I think one of the really exciting things, though, is that Feeding America has decided to adopt our recommendations as their new standards they'll be using nationwide with all their food banks. And over time, they do hope to change their framework on which they're measuring food bank inventory and distribution numbers to align with this, where we'll be able to see how many food banks across the country, what's the percentage of their food inventory that falls in that choose often, first choose sometimes, first choose rarely categories, and see progress over time, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's so good when we're all on the same page. And even better are those food banks and food pantries that help have a policy focus with their clients. Personally, I'm familiar with the Oregon food bank system. I know that there has been really progressive approaches taken in terms of, hey, we don't really think that this way of getting food should be institutionalized. Let's work towards policies that create affordable housing, access to health care, uh, living wage, so that all of the things that put a family more likely to be in poverty and then relying on food banks or food pantries, we can help get to the core of the problem. Yeah, the Oregon Food Bank is doing some amazing work, as are many of their colleagues in the system. I think that's one of the exciting things about having this common set of nutrition standards across the charitable food system is that we can really use these to guide those conversations about policies with donors about which items food banks prefer to distribute and where they need more donations and discussions with policymakers even along those lines of can we find ways to incentivize those healthier donations? And again, can we also maybe do something I don't know, like the double up food box or the healthy food incentives where you see those growing popularity across the country where people participating in food stamps, if they buy fruits and vegetables, they're twice as far. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could find a way to incentivize food banks to purchase those items and almost give them a similar credit? I think there's a lot of real opportunity here to do a larger systems change that really impacts that upstream flow of food into the system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I also want to mention something from your report that, you know, and this is what's so tragic. So we already said that one in nine households in the richest country on the planet are food insecure or deal with hunger on a regular basis. But the number of households experiencing food insecurity, your report says, is likely to increase due to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's various proposed and final rules to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what we used to call food stamps, or now we call SNAP, that would make millions of people ineligible for the program. And implementation of those rules would result in a loss of more than 2.4 billion meals from families and individuals. So 
Let's talk about how important SNAP benefits are. I know that for myself, I always like to recommend that people get in touch with and develop relationships with their members of Congress to let them know this is not a good idea. We are really harming the potential for future generations to be productive citizens if they're not well-nourished. Tell me your thoughts on these USDA rules. Yeah, I think we're in a time where we're seeing a lot of proposals to roll back rules that really support a lot of the federal feeding programs. So SNAP is one. And I think with the proposed changes, there's a series of three rules that have been proposed. I believe some of them are already actually being implemented. And the reality here is without SNAP food assistance benefits, these families are going to be turning to food banks and pantries more often to help make up for the loss in access to food. And so we're likely to see the demand on food pantries grow as a result. And I think it's important to go back to some of the health impacts of this as well. We're we're going to see higher rates of food insecurity as families are losing benefits. And, you know, there was just an article published in the March issue of the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that that really shows food insecurity contributes to children's psychological distress. They're worried about not having enough food. They're worried about their parents' well-being and frustration about not having food. They're embarrassed about not having enough food. And moreover, we know that this chronic stress in childhood really does play importantly into children's growth and development. There's been research that looks at early childhood and childhood experiences of of trauma and stress really biologically alters the pathways by which their body processes food and increases their risk for obesity and other chronic diseases down the road, all in response to the alterations in their stress hormones and their hunger and and fullness signals. And this is a really serious issue that a lot of people don't realize. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think this is one of the most important research papers that our journal has published in years just because of how you describe this this way of chronic disease developing among children who experience trauma. And being hungry is a form of trauma. So yeah, we have to put our focus on children and making sure that they're well-nourished, as well as when we see a patient who comes to us with obesity, I think too often our society blames that person for their weight. And they say, well, you know, you're just making bad choices when actually that problem of obesity and all of the diseases related to it could actually stem from food security during childhood. Yeah, it's something that we really need more research on and more attention on, both in the clinical and the policy worlds. I want to bring up something else that is near and dear to both of us, and that is in January, USDA issued proposed rollbacks to school meal nutrition standards. So basically what this rollback would do would be to allow schools to serve foods that are high in calories, high in saturated fat or sodium more often, and at the same time, lowering amounts of fruits and the variety of the important green and dark yellow vegetables in school meals. I can't imagine how anyone would support these kinds of rollbacks, but I'm so glad that you brought it up in this report so that we could all be thinking about plans to institute healthy school food guidelines first and foremost. 
Yeah. I mean, nutritious school meals are really important for millions of children, some of for whom this might be the only solid meal they get every day. And we know it's really important, you know, a nutritious school meal can help put children on a path to lifelong health and well-being and help establish those healthy eating habits, provide that source of food. And the proposed changes are definitely putting that at risk. Yeah. Well, I want to direct our listeners to healthyeatingresearch.org, where they can find the full report. It's titled Healthy Eating Research Nutrition Guidelines for the Charitable Food System. And you can also find accompanying recommendations there. So if, if this topic speaks to us and we want to get involved, let's all work from the same plan and the same guidelines. I think we'll be more effective that way. Megan, is there anything that you want to bring forth from this report that I may have neglected to bring up? One thing that's really exciting, I mentioned that Feeding America has decided to adopt these nutrition standards in their network. And as part of that, Healthy Eating Research is going to be working with Feeding America over the coming months, and as well as some other national partners, to really develop and build out that implementation guide and toolkit I mentioned earlier. And so we're really looking to include information for communicating with stakeholders and clients, information for training staff on how to rank and track the food, really looking at developing procurement strategies and donation policies, advising Feeding America and others on how they can run reports to monitor the rankings and address challenges, and really focusing at the core on giving guidance that could aid in implementation so that we make sure regardless of capacity or training or philosophy or culture, that these guidelines can provide multiple on-ramps for adaptation and phased implementation depending on local needs. We have food banks who, like the Oregon Food Bank, who have been doing things like this for years and will probably be able to look at these guidelines and say, oh yeah, we can do that, let's jump right in. And other food banks who, you know, really haven't dove into this at all because they don't have any nutrition background or expertise and it feels overwhelming and they're not really sure where to start. And the goal of this toolkit will be to to provide everyone with a way and an opportunity to include these in their implementation. And so that's something that we hope will be coming out in the fall of 2020 and we're really excited about and, you know, really excited about the opportunity in particular to take the research and the nutrition science that went into developing these recommendations that hopefully will influence policy, but then also think about the program implementation side. So really connecting the research policy and program dots is not something you always get to do. And that's a really exciting aspect of this project. Yeah, I am so glad that you have received funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to do this work. And we should just remind listeners again, that there is a network of 200 food banks 60,000 food pantries and meal programs providing meals to more than 40 million fellow American citizens every year. So this is a huge problem. It is likely only to get worse, especially as we see coronavirus impacts on our society and all of the myriad other policy issues that we have to face, affordable health care, affordable access to dental care, for example, to be able to eat some of these more nutritious foods, affordable housing, etc. Everything is connected. 
So Megan, with that, I just want to thank you so much for being my guest. Remind everyone again that healthyeatingresearch.org is where you can find this particular report and you can take action to be an advocate as well. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that they are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And we have been joined by my guest and friend, fellow dietitian Megan Lott. She is the Deputy Director for Healthy Eating Research, which is a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation based at Duke University. And I will provide a link to this report on the website as well. Thank you so much for your time, Megan. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It was a pleasure. 